0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usri, and this week we have the first of a two-part interview where returning guest host Dr. David Mason speaks with Dr. Julie Carr about her book Mud, Blood, and Ghosts, Populism, Eugenics, and Spiritualism in the American West, which is published by the University of Nebraska Press. David is the director of the Asian Studies Program at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Julie is the director of the Women's Studies Department and professor of English at the University of Colorado Boulder. It's really good to meet you, Julie Carr. Thanks for giving me some time to talk about your book, Mud, Blood, and Ghosts. My first question is, who in the world is this book about? (laughs) Well, that is actually
1: kind of a trick question, because the book is centered around my great-grandfather, whose name was Omer Madison Kem. I will say a few things about him, but I'm not sure that he is... The person, or the only person that the book is about, so Omer Kem was a homesteader who went to Nebraska in the early 1880s to homestead on a bunch of prairie. He got there, and you know, having been completely poverty-struck in Indiana, and and uh, really, as he put it, drowning and in, in the inability to uh, feed his family, arrived to Nebraska and found out that conditions there were not much better, if not, they were worse. So even though he was given all this free land on the Homestead Act, he faced railroad rates, he faced falling crop prices, he faced a lending industry that was willing to prey on, on vulnerable farmers, and he also faced a 10-year drought. And so with all of these factors coming together over the sort of first uh, number of years that they were in Nebraska, and of course, a growing family, you know, babies being born, his first wife died, but then he quickly married again and more babies and more babies. And so at that point, he he was a founding member of the Populist Party, and then and we, I'm sure we'll talk more about that. And he became a representative for Nebraska's third district in Congress. From there, he became a spiritualist. I know we'll talk about that. And uh, eventually moved to Colorado and then to Oregon, where he got very deeply involved in the eugenics movement. So the book tracks his story, but what i really wanted to do and hope that i did is tell a lot of other stories that were adjacent to his or that his narrative had an effect on other people right so you know other people in the movements that he was involved in but also other people who whose lives were you know influenced by things that were going on at that time that he had something to do with so you know native people for example I tell a lot of different stories having to do with native dispossession, people, other people in the family. And also this book is about me. (laughs) And, you know, it's about my coming to understand more closely what this family history meant and means for me, but also for, you know, more broadly for the nation now. And the story is also, you know, the book is also about, in a way, Trump populism and where we are as a country in terms of left and right politics
0: now. Would you characterize the book as an exercise in academic history?
1: <laughs> not really. So I was not trained as a historian. I don't have a PhD in history. I am an academic. I have a PhD in literary studies, but what I really am is a writer. So, you know, I teach poetry workshops, and I write books of poetry and also of essays and nonfiction, different kinds. But this is the first book that I've written that delves so much into history that has, you know, this much historical research and, you know, where I really went to archives and studied movements and read a lot of secondary history about these topics. So I don't really feel qualified to call it an academic work of history, but I also didn't really want it to be that. I wanted it to be a book that anybody might read, not just a specialist. And I also acknowledge that, you know, I don't know that I'm doing the kind of work that a lot of historians do which you know which is to dig deep you know so deeply into an archive that they discover you know new facts you know mm. i'm doing more of a kind of a synthesis and an analysis um and an, and maybe more of a really personal engagement with historical topics the book
0: read to me as a remarkably personal engagement with the past if that's what history is right but what what really grabbed me, in addition to your personal investment in the story, was the story as an amalgamation of many stories. Mm -hmm. The the book tells a whole bunch of stories. And and sometimes it's very clear how those stories cooperate in a collective story. Sometimes it's not so clear. Do you feel like there's one coherent narrative arc through the book? I do. I think the central narrative arc is
1: about The move from populism into eugenics. I mean, I think if I if I had to give that sort of like, you know, elevator pitch, Mm. that that's the argument, I guess one could say, which has to do with the way that maybe I should say, it's an argument about how cellular colonialism, populism, and eugenics interact right how one sort of leads to the other to the other and so it's an argument about about the idea of national identity about the idea of americanness it's an argument that says something like americans or privileged americans are told that our identity is rooted in our relationship to this soil to the land, that we somehow belong to it, and it belongs to us. Or you could say our identity is rooted in an idea about private property, that we own parts of this land, and therefore, in a sense, it owns us, and we belong, right? We're Mm -hmm. members. (laughs) And that, that notion of identity rooted in the land is always, you could say, vulnerable, or you could say always in question, or always a problem. And one of the reasons it's a problem, maybe the central reason that it's a problem, is because the land was stolen. And we know that, right? So as white Americans, or as settlers, or as the, as the descendants of settlers, we have that knowledge. We don't acknowledge it very often. We don't always say it out loud. We don't often know the details of it. But we do know. And so that sense of belonging to and in the land doesn't quite hold, right? It doesn't quite work as a grounding for identity. And so when you see people like my great-grandfather, whose sense of, of that identity was so, in a way, needed, right? He kind of deeply and was so anxiously attached to that identity, and yet it didn't hold. And so he found, the way I put it, is he found a new way to establish his legitimate American belonging, and that new way is by identifying his legitimacy through the blood. Mm. So an idea of blood purity, racial purity, and a kind of a fitness of the blood that then becomes a kind of fascistic way of thinking, right? Mm. My blood is better than your blood. My blood is worthy and yours is not. So that's really, I'd say if I was going to have to say there's an argument to the book, that is the central
0: argument. So you've, you've brought our attention to Omer Kim's complicated identity. He seems to be wrapped up in a lot of contradictions. What exactly are the contradictions for Omer Kim and and, yeah. and what does he do with it? What do yeah. you do with it? Yeah. I mean,
1: the sort of central contradiction has to do with the idea of equality. So... For the populists, the Populist Party, which is, you know, formed in the beginning of the 1890s as a, in a sense, well, as a third party, in a sense, as a protest party, they were not happy with the Republicans or the Democrats. They were arguing for more income, sort of income equality, for more protections, governmental protections for the working poor and the farming class, um, what they called the producer class at that time. And their slogan was equal rights for all special privileges for none. And they come across, you know, you can read the populace, read their their speeches, you know, read their platform. And there's a lot in there that is really rousing, you know, that is to be admired. You know, they they had a, a strong analysis of the problems of Gilded Age, corruption and Gilded Age income inequalities of power that was out of balance. And they had a strong argument for the need for the rich to pay their due through taxes to support the poor. You know, the populace also, in some moments, had a model of collaboration across race, since there were Black populace and white populace, and they often worked together. They also had many women who were involved in leadership in the populist party. So there was a lot to admire there. And Omer
0: admired it, right?
1: He admired it and he was a leader in it, you know, and he really spoke to those values and he was passionate about them. Where the contradictions start to come in for him is when he starts, as I was describing, you know, starts to shift towards this idea of eugenics. So eugenics is also you could say a kind of visionary movement. It imagines the future where human beings are, you know, healthier, stronger, smarter, fitter, more capable and functional within democracy because of all those things. So democracy works better if people are somehow better, right? But they imagine getting there through a very sort of coercive biopolitical set of practices that some of them are more mild like marriage laws or immigration restriction, and then get extreme like forced sterilization of certain people considered unfit. So that's an incredible contradiction because you go from a set of beliefs about sort of everybody deserving equal rights to a set of beliefs that look to at a very rigid hierarchy of value. Not only are some people not deserving a right, some people are literally not even deserving a life. (laughs) I mean, at the very end of his life, he starts to kind of consider the possibility that infanticide would be a, a solution to the problem of, you know, quote unquote, feeble mindedness. So, you know, how do you reconcile these, what seems to be like a complete shift or a complete flip in, you know, kind of philosophy or mentality? You know, part of it is that question of identity that I was talking about, you know, trying to find a sense of legitimacy, a sense that one's own self belongs, you know? It's not just that the land didn't yield, (laughs) it's also that populism fell apart, right? So the land didn't yield, he wasn't able to establish that identity of a producer, you know, on the land because of all of these factors that were in play. But also then the the political movement that seeks to justify that problem falls apart when they decide to fold themselves within the Democrats, within the Democratic Party. So some of their goals were met much, much later during the Progressive Era, but their own sense of political identity fell apart. So this new identity, which is essentially a racial identity, even though he wouldn't have put it that way, it it absolutely is a racial identity and a kind of national identity. He became incredibly patriotic through the First World War and the years after, comes in a sense to replace what I think of as a kind of psychic collapse. And I think you can apply that shift very broadly when you look at sort of social groups who have a strong identity in place or in what they do, you know, in their labor, and then that somehow gets taken away or doesn't hold or can't hold within economic realities. Or you look at social groups who have a strong political identity, and then that starts to fall apart. They can no longer identify with political institutions that perhaps they they could identify with before. So where do they find their identity? They Maybe in some cases they might find it in religion or they might find it in a kind of racialized identity or what we could call identity politics.
0: One of the really core contradictions, it seems to me, in Omer's life is how he understands property and yeah. ownership. So you say he's born to nothing. He doesn't own property in the first place. It seems to bedevil him, but that... Yep changes and his attitudes change too to chart that for us sure yeah so he
1: starts out his life in indiana and one of the things i write about in the first chapter which is called mud is something that most people would find to be totally boring but i found to be incredibly exciting which is a law that was passed in 1850 called the swamp lands act and the swamp lands act was a moment when congress decides to grant all the wetlands that were at that time public property to grant the the wetlands to their states, the states in which they were, with the understanding that the state would sell the land to private developers who would drain it. And then draining the land, then they would be able to develop it into most of the time farmland. So this happened all over the South, but it happened also in the Midwest, what we call now the Midwest, so Indiana, Ohio, which those states, as a lot of people probably don't know, were originally just almost entirely swamp or wetlands being so close to the lakes, right? So this law led to a kind of corrupt system, especially in Indiana, of land speculation. So all of these mostly East Coast elites bought up huge swaths of land, super cheap, Because they had the resources to do this, you know, draining work and, you know, take their time and eventually turn it into what is now the Corn Belt. So people like Omer Kem, who were poor farmers who couldn't afford much at all at that point, Uh, It became impossible for them to own land because it was all owned by these big developers. So, you know, you can make a comparison to now to the housing crisis, right? A lot of the housing stock in, say, San Francisco or Denver, where I live, you know, is owned by big development companies. And so individual people cannot afford homes. So that process was going on there. And he also got involved in the the draining work. So he worked for these big landowners and he would, you know, do the as he called it laborious, dirty labor of sort of digging ditches in swamps, trying to drain the water out of swamps. And because he
0: aspired to own some of that land once yeah, it was get, sorry, I'm
1: going on and on. I'll get there. No, no, sorry. no, not at all. I find this really
0: interesting. I just wanted to mark his motivation yeah. at this point.
1: Of course yeah I mean to own property would would in his mind mean that he would become independent you know when he's a young man he's just paying rent and he can't pay the rent because you know you have to promise the crops as rent and then the crops don't really come in because by the way it's a swamp and you can't grow much and so then you got to basically skip out on your rent, which is what he would do sort of every year. He'd kind of leave at the same same time of year, like right when the crops are coming in, he's moving again and usually selling whatever cow or horse he had. And, you know, just it's totally a losing battle. And so the idea of, this, of the Homestead Act was fascinating history about kind of why the Homestead Act Act was passed and when it was passed having to do with the Civil War. But anyway, uh, the Homestead Act, one of the things it was trying to do was to kind of rectify this problem of a growing underclass of, you know, kind of white laborers who couldn't really make a go of it in the you know eastern and midwestern states. And so the idea was, well, let's move them west. And the other idea was that by moving populations west into uh, Native American territories, you'd basically be pushing the indigenous people out. So it's a kind of quote unquote nonviolent way of waging that war. So he had this idea that by taking this free land, it was entirely free, but basically free land, he would become, you know, a property owner. And what that meant was that he'd be financially independent, but also he'd have this sense of, you know, kind of being able to, to control his own destiny, you know, instead of owing to the landlord. So, you know, it's an understandable goal. One of the things that I mark is that when he describes his move west, when he describes he was 26 years old, when he describes arriving in Nebraska finally and sort of seeing the land that was going to be his 320 acres, he says, essentially, I was one proud boy. And I think about that phrase, proud boy, you know, of course it rings bells, Hmm. but I thought about it a lot. And I thought about this contradiction right within the very phrase, you know, on the one hand, he's proud. So he has that sort of pride of ownership and of the sort of manly pride. Now I can take care of my family. And then he has this sense of dependency of being a boy because the land he did not earn it. You know, he did not work, he worked, but he didn't work in order to purchase that land, right? So he didn't have that sense of accomplishment. He simply was given it by nature of his identity,
0: essentially. His white identity
1: his white identity. I mean, there were black homesteaders, it should be said. The homestead law did not specify, you know, only white people allowed, but it did take land from native people. Right. And he knew that, you know, that's another thing that's important and was surprising to me when I was reading in the archive to learn is that, you know, I had this question going in, how much did these homesteaders know about the Native American people whose land they were taking or they were, or whose, you know, whose homes they were supplanting. And turns out they knew, they totally knew. They were not surprised at all. It wasn't as if they were like, well, we go to this empty land and we just get some empty land and now it's ours. They knew exactly who had been there and whose land it really was. That was a little bit surprising to and, me. and you
0: mentioned the archive um, yeah. in which you discover this, what, what exactly were you searching out in the archive and, and how did yeah. it reveal to you Omer's certain knowledge of what he was doing?
1: So the archive is a 2000 page autobiography that he wrote from you know, sort of the last 20 years of his life. And it's in 11 different volumes. They eventually were housed at the Creighton University Rare Books Library in Omaha, Nebraska. There was a sort of summary of the whole that he also wrote. And that summary, which was, of course, just a single volume, much shorter, he made copies of one for each child, each of his children. So one of those children was my grandmother, Kathleen. So we had the summary. There was also a... Master's student, Deloitte Guth was his name in the 1960s, who went to Creighton and wrote his master's thesis on Omer Chem. And we had that, we had a copy of that too. So we knew from those two documents that the whole autobiography was in the library at Creighton, but nobody in the family had ever been to read it. And I was the, I guess the first person of at least of my generation, and I think of my dad's generation, to go over there and start to read it. So when I was reading it, my first question was that question exactly about the settler. What did the settler know? You know, what did they feel about their role in settler colonialism? This was the summer of Standing Rock. And so I was very motivated by that movement to try to understand better my own family's legacy as settlers and just to know the stories in their detail not just in that broad general oh yes the indians lost their land but we don't really know what that means in the detail so i wanted to know those details and i wanted to understand his kind of emotional i guess you could say relationship to that story or to that those facts and so what i found was him saying well you know we were going to go to this one place where we hoped to find free land that was until literally like yesterday an Indian reservation and we were told that the Indians had all been moved and so we could go get that land. So we were going there and then when they got there they found out that that particular spot was in fact not open to homesteading not because it was native land but because it was going to be sold because that land was worth quite a bit because it was on a river. So they were pushed a little bit further west where the native people that had had been there had been moved out earlier. So the land was sort of empty, sort of not empty. There was definitely native people around, which he talks about later. But at the time, he sort of just moves in.
0: Do you feel like in his autobiography, he's wrestling with the question of what he's doing at this point in his life?
1: Yeah. So an autobiography is always going to be sort of in work of fiction, right? So it's not all of history in a sense is a work of fiction. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: of course, when it's written in his voice, you know, he's aggrandizing and he's narrating and he's having a lot of fun. He loved to write. And so he's, you know, he's making everything sound, you know, like it was all for a purpose. It all worked out in the end, kind of thing. But yes, I think that the struggles are as I've been talking about, around identity, around a sense of pride, trying to find that sense of pride, the struggles are also real material struggles, because it isn't, you know, when we say, oh, the land didn't yield, so he felt this, well, also the land didn't yield, and so people were starving. (laughs) It's no joke. I mean, you know, drought, mortgages meant that they really couldn't eat. And so the only reason the family survives is because, you know, friends and family from the Midwest is, are sending food and sending clothing. Children are dying. Uh, women are dying. You know, it's it's a really no joke, the struggles that they are facing. I think those are very familiar to kind of readers of the West. Right. We sort of all I grew up anyway with those narratives, you know, like, oh, the struggles that our ancestors went through to survive. And yet they survived and they had all this grit. And I don't want to make fun of that because that's actually true. But there's just so much more to the story than just that sort of heroic narrative of survival. Let me put it this way. He arrives in Congress. It's 1892. One of the very first speeches he gives in Congress on the floor, and he's very speechy. He likes to give speeches. They're long. Is about the Indian boarding schools. So there's a debate going on about where should we put these schools, right? So this is this
0: assimilationist period. These schools were built to remove children from their yeah. families and educate right. them, principally in English.
1: Exactly. To educate them into Christianity, into the English language, and into, often into kind of farm labor or domestic labor. These children are being removed from their families, and it's also a way of kind of breaking down tr- tribal relations quite openly. And so what they talk about is where should we place these schools as we're building them, right? Should we build them near to the reservations or far from the reservations? If we build them far from the reservations, then the children have less of an opportunity to go back home and reunite with their families, which would be uh, bad.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) They forget everything they've learned about being white. Uh,
1: Yeah. Yeah but if we build them closer to the reservations then the parents will be more sort of malleable right because they'll be less they'll be less grieving and so they'll kind of go along with it, what we want them to do so it's like which manipulation should we do and omer kem makes this impassioned speech against both of these things and says there should be no indian boarding schools at all Indian people should educate their children at home in whatever way they want. And he goes on to say like that every single depredation, every single war, every single battle that's been fought between settlers and Indian people, as he calls them, is the fault of the white people. He says, We took their land. We treat these people like they're animals. We do not treat them like a brother, like we should. These are human beings. They have the rights that we have, and we shouldn't be taking their children, and we shouldn't be taking their land. Okay. So he says all of that. And it's this beautiful speech. I practically, you know, cried when I read it the first time, shared it with my family. Can you believe this? No one else was thinking this way, hardly at all. You know, of course, some people were. But then that very same. Congressional session, he is involved in legislating the further removal of Ute people from their reservation in Southern Colorado. He argues for it. He says they should be moved off that reservation and over to Utah because that land would be valuable to people in Durango or people who might want to farm down in Southern Colorado. So, what do you do with that? You know, and I I mean, I write about it as sort of like the problem between, you know, words and deeds, like deeds speak louder, you know. But what you can see there is that internal contradiction or that internal conflict between, I think, a sincere sense of his own sort of settler guilt, right? And his knowledge of what's going on and his self interest and the self interest of his constituents, which are white farmers in the West. Like, like himself? and Like himself. And then he does go and buy some cheap land in Colorado when he's done being a congressman.
0: Dr. Julie Carr is the author of Mud, Blood, and Ghosts, Populism, Eugenics, and Spiritualism in the American West, which is published by the University of Nebraska Press. Dr. David Mason was your guest host today. Please come back next time for the conclusion of their discussion. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.